Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This first week, there's an episode every day. For today's episode, we're looking at a curious haunting. This one takes place in Cambridge, England way back in 1967. Today, we're meeting Matthew Manning. In February 1967, Matthew Manning was 11 years old. Their house in Cambridge was fairly new and had no history of hauntings or anything spooky going on inside it. One morning, Matthew's dad, Derek, discovered a silver tankard on the floor of their home. The tankard wasn't a new thing for the house. It lived on a shelf in the room. Derek put the tankard back on the shelf and the next morning it was on the floor again. Derek confronted his kids, thinking one of them might be the culprit. They all denied it. So Derek hatched a plan to catch them out. One evening, when the kids were in bed, he dusted the shelf with talcum powder. That way, if anyone moved the tankard, there would be evidence. The tankard was on the floor in the morning, but the talcum powder was undisturbed. Other things started to move to odd places then. Derek was confused at first, but then became quite disturbed by the occurrences, so he called the police. They advised him to call the Cambridge Psychical Research Society. The society's secretary, Dr Owen, told Derek that it was possibly a poltergeist, and if that was the case, there wasn't much that could stop it. While Derek was in contact with the Society of Psychical Research, the occurrences became worse. Matthew wrote a book called The Link Later in Life, in which he described the happenings. He said, Invariably, the objects moved were lightweight ornaments, chairs, cutlery, ashtrays, baskets, plates, a small coffee table, and a score of other articles. But none was ever broken or spilled. As the physical manifestations increased, the house began to produce erratic taps and creaks. The noises would vary from a dull knocking to a sound like a small stone being thrown at the window, and they continued throughout the day and night in different parts of the house. Dr Owen visited the Manning house to investigate and held up in the house to see if they could observe any activity. Unfortunately, they didn't see anything, although things in the house were still moved. Dr. Owens told Derek that there seems to be a connection between poltergeist activity and the presence of an adolescent in the house. Derek sent his three children to stay with relatives and the activity stopped for a while. This only lasted until Matthew returned to the house though. As soon as he returned, the activity began again, but was worse. Larger objects started to move like the furniture. This didn't last forever, 
and the activity died down and seemed to have stopped when Matthew was sent to boarding school. At Christmas in 1970, Matthew returned home. He heard scratching behind the wood panelling in his room and footsteps outside the window. However, he went back to school and everything stopped again. The next time he came home, the activity began once again with a sinister quality. Matthew wrote about this in his book too, saying, I had gone to bed and I lay there restlessly. I suddenly heard a scraping noise coming from the direction of the cupboard, which continued for almost 30 seconds. Having listened to it for a moment, I switched on my lamp and saw to my horror that the cupboard was inching out from the wall toward me. When it halted, it had advanced around 18 inches. I switched off the light and almost simultaneously, my bed started to vibrate violently back and forth. I was now too timid to move and I lay in anticipation of whatever might happen next. The vibrating ceased and I felt the bottom end of my bed rising from the floor to what I estimated to be about one foot. The head end of the bed then rose two to three inches and at the same time, the bed pitched out towards the centre of the room, finally settling at an angle against the wall. Terrified, Matthew fled his room and went to his parents' room to curl up in a sleeping bag in there. The rest of the night was quiet, but in the morning, the family discovered just how bad the night had been before. As they walked through the house, they discovered that the entity had been in the dining room, sitting room and other ground floor rooms. All of them were in an awful state. Furniture had been moved around, tables had been flipped and ornaments had been thrown around the rooms. This continued for the next few days with pools of water appearing on the floors and childish drawings being discovered on the walls. At one point, Matthew Beware was written on the walls and the family began to observe objects being moved around. If the family asked for a specific item to be moved, it would be. Matthew returned to school and this time the poltergeist followed him. It began to manifest in his room by moving objects, but then began to move furniture and create pools of water in the dormitory. Sometimes objects would fly through the air as if to hit a person and then either change direction or hit them lightly enough that the boys in the dormitory couldn't feel it. The matron even recalled sitting quietly of an evening and suddenly being showered with pebbles or wood chippings. Around this time, Matthew began to try and channel the energy of the poltergeist into something else. He started with automatic writing, then moved into more intricate drawings. He later said that he had no idea whether they were a product of his own mind or whether he was used as a conduit for the entity or entities to express themselves. He guessed that at least 5% of his automatic writing could be messages from the dead. Once Matthew began to use himself as a conduit for the poltergeist, the activity seemed to become less common and eventually disappeared completely.
During the story, Dr. Owen suggested that poltergeist activity can be something that happens when there is an adolescent around. There are a few theories on poltergeists and adolescents floating around the internet, and none of them show up on Google Scholar. I'll quickly run through them. Brevetto and Maxia believe that puberty modifies the brain and can cause disturbances up to a few metres away from the body. It involves the idea that the fluctuations in the brain enhance something called virtual particles around a person. This creates more pressure in the air around them, moving objects and causing unknown sounds. Jason Love believes there's three main reasons for poltergeist activity. First is a child thinking and feeling things because they've heard parents and other adults saying that they're hearing or seeing things. Second, there is a possibility of residual energy that is connected to the land. Third, and most importantly, is the possibility that something has attached to a person and is feeding from their energy, usually someone in their early teens. Parapsychology researchers have attributed the phenomenon to psychokinesis, a psychic ability that allows people to move objects without touching them. This can be attributed to either the adolescent in the situation or the poltergeist in question. There was a single entry on Google Scholar when I looked. It was a primer by Brian Williams and Annalisa Ventola about the poltergeist phenomenon. They suggest that general psychokinesis isn't usually strong enough to manifest as poltergeist activity, so they refer to a stronger form of psychokinesis called recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, which happens in bursts and irregularly. Because of that, the effects are usually stronger. Williams and Ventola suggest that the poltergeist activity is specifically a human phenomenon because the energy needed to move objects like that would likely come from someone who was suffering from heightened emotions. So, from what I can gather, poltergeist activity is likely not a ghost of any form, but a form of psychic power that adolescents have no control over. Much like everything else that happens to them. The stress of life changing so rapidly around them without them being able to do anything about it manifests in all these crazy ways and they're powerless to stop it. The problem with the psychic power is that there's no way to measure or watch it. It's not possible. So this one's still unexplained. The story from today's episode came from the 1982 Reader's Digest book, Mysteries of the Unexplained, pages 179 and 180. The theories came from a Daily Record article released after a Scottish poltergeist manifested in 2016, and a New Scientist article called They're Here, The Mechanism of Poltergeist Activity. The primer that explains poltergeists was called Poltergeist Phenomena, a primer on parapsychology research and perspectives. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, you can currently find me on Facebook at What The Heck Mystery Podcast, Instagram at WT Heck Podcast, 
and you can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash whattheheckpodcast. Currently, there are no tiers to the Patreon, but once the ball starts rolling, there will be tiers with extra special things for you. I've also set up an email address, whattheheckpod3 at gmail.com. I'd like you to send in your stories of the unexplained so I can read them out in secondary episodes. But if you have any issues with my phrasing or think some of the things that I've said are insensitive, please don't be afraid to let me know and I'll address them in episodes as I record them. Thanks for listening and I'll see you for the next episode. (laughs) 